0: We'll start in verse number 28. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early in the morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you king of the Jews? Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. And Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, what is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we, um, as we read this, this narrative, we read about the events. Um, the big E on the I chart is spotting the sins of the Jewish leaders. But help us today to connect with them. That we all, in our own ways, by the transgression of our sins, we've all um, chosen Barabbas over you. We've all chosen our own way over you. And Lord, would you just show us Christ that we come in here, many of us, and we, we understand that our hands are stained by sin. But show us you, Jesus. May we revel in you. May we revel in who you are. And in seeing you for who you are, may we worship you. May we long to have clean hands. May we long to live for you. It's in your precious and holy name we pray. Amen. Um, thank you. You could be seated again. Here's here's the main idea of, of of, of the text, of the sermon today. And it's this, that Jesus goes to the cross as a couple of things. Jesus is going to the cross as a sacrificial lamb. Jesus is going to the cross as the perfect law keeper who will represent us. And Jesus is going to the cross as the sovereign king. Now we're not gonna get to the sovereign king and the kingdom part this week, We'll pick that up next week. In fact, we're not even gonna get to Barabbas this week. We'll pick that up next week. And we wanna just try to hone in on those two um, right there, that Jesus is uh, the sacrifice. Jesus goes to the cross as the sacrificial lamb. Jesus goes to the cross as the sovereign king. Now listen, here's how we respond to that truth. We respond to Jesus for who he is by believing in him, by worshiping him, by trusting in the salvation that he brings. And so that's kind of the point. How do we respond to this truth right here? Here's how we respond, we respond with worship. When you rightly see who Jesus is, and that's why John is writing this gospel so that we would properly and rightly see Jesus for who he is. We live in a culture that is confused about who Jesus is. You and I, we come in with that kind of baggage that we're confused about Jesus. Some say Jesus is a mere man. Some say, oh, no, he's not. He's a good teacher. He's all of these things, but who is Jesus? And so John takes it upon himself to write a gospel narrative and an account to tell us who Jesus is. And so in every aspect, in every story, in every narrative, with every miracle, with every word spoken, we want to see who Christ is so that we can respond correctly to him because no one just looks at Jesus for who he is and says, hmm, that's good. Hmm, that's nice. Like Jesus demands a He demands a response and the proper response to knowing who Jesus is and seeing him is worship. That's the proper response is to worship him as king. Now, we are in the final hours of Jesus's life here, his earthly life here. This is it. In fact, like in the reading, it says it's early in the morning. So it's probably around 6 a.m. in the morning. That's where we are. And we're at the part of Jesus undergoing trials. Pastor Brian picked that up last week. And so Jesus will, uh, Jesus will undergo like kind of two sets of trials. He'll undergo a total of six trials. And so if this was a, if this was a, a story or a play or, or, or even a movie, then first of all, we could say this, that Jesus is, he's the writer and the director and the producer and the main character of this play. No one else in this play takes center stage except Jesus, not Pontius Pilate, not the Jewish leaders. They are all just uh, subplot creatures in this story. So first we would say that, that Jesus is orchestrating this and Jesus is the main character. But second thing we could say about this is uh, is this plot or this story, um, this play would be taken down into two uh, two parts, right? Into two kind of uh, acts. And act one would be kind of titled the uh, Jesus's trials under the Jewish leaders. So Jesus would stand trial under Um, these Jewish leaders. The second part would be Jesus under the Roman leaders. And so the first set is uh, three and three under each one. Jesus under the Jewish leaders, Jesus will stand before, and Pastor Brian pointed this out before, Annas and Caiaphas, who are the high priests at this time. And that's a little confusing. I thought Brian did a great job with that, but we can just say this, they're both effectively the high priests. Jesus stands trial um, with Annas and Caiaphas, and then he'll stand trial with the Sanhedrin, now, the Sanhedrin were the, the supreme court, kind of the Jewish supreme court. And John omits this from his gospel. Now, John omits this doesn't mean that it didn't happen. It's picked up in the other gospel accounts. Like I said, John's purpose in writing isn't to give us a historically accurate, detailed uh, uh, kind of timeline of events. That's not what John's goal is. That's what Luke's goal is. So if you wanna know like, hey, what's the timeline and what takes place? And you wanna get really into the details, then read Luke's gospel account. But John, he's he, he omits a few things and it's not because they didn't happen. It's not because they're not important. It just doesn't fit with the purpose that Jesus is orchestrating and John writing his gospel. John's focus isn't on kind of subparts and plots. John wants to say, here is who Jesus is. So he omits the Sanhedrin from there, but Jesus will stand trial with the Sanhedrin Again, they're like a, a bunch of lawyers, a bunch of judges that stand. They listen to cases according to the law, the law of Moses, and they give their judgment. So that's the first set. Those three, These three trials, they are religious in nature. The charge that they brought Jesus against is that Jesus claims to be God, which would be blasphemy. Jesus, you claim to be God, this is blasphemous. That's the charge that Jesus has been brought up against. The verdict, when they're finished, the verdict will be guilty. Guilty. Jesus isn't guilty of blasphemy, but Jesus is guilty of claiming to be God because he is God. The second set, well, let's also, let's say this. Now they've moved from from the, the Jewish leaders now to the Roman leaders. So why do the Romans come into play if the Jews at the end of their trial, if they find Jesus to be guilty, why don't they just execute Jesus? Well, here's why is they need the Romans to execute Jesus. And they need the Romans to execute Jesus for kind of three reasons. The first reason is um, legally. We see this in our text, that technically the Jews did not have, uh, they didn't have permission. They didn't have the right to, to execute capital punishment. It had been stripped from them by the Romans. The Romans had said, hey, you can no longer execute anyone, even though the, the, the Jews will still do this. But that's what Pilate will say in verse 31. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him according to your own law. And then they reply with, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. And so they're bringing this law, even though they have put people to death and they will put people to death, but here they don't wanna bring Jesus to, and put Jesus to death because of the second reason. The second reason why they need the Romans to put Jesus to death is because they want to use the Romans as a scapegoat. The second reason would be kind of socially. The Jews are unsure in this moment as to how much love, hate there is with the Jewish people and Jesus. Like you got to remember just five days ago, Jesus entered into the streets of Jerusalem and the streets were crowded with people singing, Hosanna, Hosanna to the King, throwing palm branches, Palm Sunday, throwing palm branches at Jesus, crying to him, this great... Five days later, the Jews are unaware. Now, God has already turned their hearts over to all of their sin and they hate Jesus as we'll see next week when the crowd cries out, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. But the Jews are unaware of that. And so they don't wanna stir up any more riots, any more trouble. So it's easier to use the Romans as a scapegoat and let the Romans execute Jesus. But the primary reason why the Jews go to the Romans is prophetic in nature. And again, we see this in the text. This is the part that's out of their control. This is the part where they are like marionettes. They are like puppets on God's string. Remember, it's God who is writing and producing and directing this this drama, this play as it unfolds. And here's what I mean by that prophetically is the Jews' method of execution is Stoning. That's how, that's how the Jews would execute people is they would execute them by casting them down and by stoning them. They've already wanted to do this with Jesus, but God has prevented them from doing it. They already wanted at one point to push early in Jesus's ministry. Some three years ago, they wanted to push him off a cliff and then throw him down and then stone him. We saw it in John chapter eight with the woman caught in adultery. Remember they bring this woman caught into the adulterous act before Jesus. And what do they do with her? They cast her down and then they have stones in their hands because they're about to stone this woman. They'll do it. And as I said, they practice capital punishment, even though they weren't supposed to. We see that if you read, would, would read on in the New Testament in Acts chapter seven with uh, the deacon, one of the first deacons named Stephen. And Stephen is stoned to death. By the Jews, And so the Jews would cast the person down and then stone them. But how did Jesus say he would die? And that's what we find even in the text. We see that in verse 32. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. What kind of death, not to be cast down in stone, but to be lifted up and crucified. It has been said in the Old Testament, it's been said, even we saw it in the gospel of John that Jesus said, Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up. And that is the point to his death. He must be lifted up. Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I draw all men unto myself. He's speaking about being lifted up on the cross. It's spoken in the Old Testament. Cursed is anyone who hangs upon a tree. That is prophetically speaking of Jesus's death, death by how? Death by crucifixion. And that's how the Romans would kill. The Romans would execute one through lifting them up on a cross. And so the Jews need the Romans to execute Jesus. So the Jews give Jesus three trials and then the Romans give Jesus three trials. The first one is found in the text is with Pilate, the governor over the area. So he's the Roman appointed governor. He's not a Jew as we saw that in the text. He is a Gentile, he is a uh, a Roman. And so they will go before Pilate, the governor. He'll go through, he'll go through, Before Herod Antipas, again, John omits this in his gospel, but Herod is the ruler of Galilee. He's the same Herod that put John the Baptist to death. And then Jesus will come back to Pilate again. And these trials, if the first three were religious in nature, these three trials are civil in nature. The accusation brought up against Jesus here is found in verse number 30. This man is doing evil. That's the charge. He's an evildoer. He's breaking not just our law, he's breaking your law. And the verdict given by the Romans is not guilty. It's not guilty. Pilate and the Romans, they don't wanna have a hand in this. And we see this this week, and we'll see it again in the text next week. We find no fault in him, they even say. And that is true, he's not guilty of breaking the law, but we are. Jesus's guilt is a vicarious guilt that carries over from us. In fact, we can say this, Jesus is going to the cross. Jesus is going to suffer and die. Jesus is standing on trial for sin. That Jesus on the cross, he will bear the punishment for sin. That is why he's going to the cross. This isn't accidental here. Jesus isn't a victim. What's happening here is God is giving him over, giving him up to the cross so that he could be the the perfect one to bear the punishment for the sins of his people. And when we talk about sins and when the Bible speaks about sin, it speaks about sin in several different ways, but we can really talk about sin in two broad categories. The first category, if you wanna take notes, would be this, is sin as transgression. It is transgression against the law of God, that God in his infinite wisdom And God's infinite design and his beautiful and glorious design as he created this earth, he created mankind, created this earth, and then he gave to man laws to govern us. We see this all the way back even in the Garden of Eden. You know, it's a place of innocence and all that thing. Yes, and God's law exists there. When Adam and Eve are in the garden, they're given one law. You may surely eat of every tree in the garden except this one, Eat of any tree you want to except one, the the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And what happens is Adam and Eve, they transgress against that command. They break that command. Adam broke God's law. And what, this is the next part that I want us to, uh, the next step that I want you to think about. And I want you to, uh, to apply that what Paul says in Romans the fifth chapter is through Adam's sin, sin entered into the world and sin has now uh, spread to all of mankind. That what Paul says in Romans chapter 5 is that Adam represents all of humanity in the garden. He re- represents us all. And when our representative sinned, we all came under the punishment of sin. That through Adam's transgression, condemnation has spread to all of humanity. Now, some of you maybe go, hold on a minute. You mean we're found accountable or we held accountable or culpable to one man's sin? Something I didn't even do. And we're found like, you know, I'm somehow guilty because of that. And the answer to that is yes. Yes, Adam in the garden was a figurehead. He was a, he was a, a, a type, the Bible calls him. And he represented you in, he represented you in the garden. And when he sinned, we all sin, we all transgress under the law. And the reason why like, you know, again, we'd say, why how can that be? But here's the truth. Adam perfectly represents us as a people. Like what the Bible says is not only has Ad, are we kind of found guilty because of Adam's sin, but sin is, uh, it's transgressed to all of us. We're all transgressors of the law of God. And we are, are we not? Like none of us live rightly according to God's law. I mean, we could just look at the 10 commandments and we could say like, how many of us could say, hey, I've got, I've got them down. And what the Bible says is if you break one law, you break them all. We don't even have to look at all 10. I mean, heck, we could look at one. We could look at laws six through 10, for example. That's the second half of the tablet. So they're the prohibitions. It starts off with uh, number six, thou shall not murder. Now, most of us would say, okay, thou shalt not murder. Let me judge my life. Have I murdered anyone? And most of us hopefully would say, no, I've never murdered anyone in my life. But then Jesus shows up on the scene and Jesus says, hey, this is what the law, this is what the 10 commandments prove to do. It's not only did they give us prohibitions, but they also gave us positives that we are to live. And they also reflect God's character. There's the intent of the law in there. So you and I would say, hey, I've never murdered anyone. Well, then Jesus says, yeah, but what about in your heart? Have you ever said, raka? Have you ever said to your neighbor, like I'm done with you, I'm through with you? Have you ever acted unlovingly to your neighbor? That's what Jesus is saying. And the question would be, well, have you? Have you ever acted unlovingly to someone else? Have you ever said to someone, hey, I'm done with you. You're an idiot, you're a fool. Get out of my life, get out of my face, get out of my way. Have you ever acted unlovingly to your neighbor? To your parents, to your little sister, to your little brother. Well, we know little brothers deserve it because I am a little brother. I can say that, right? And the answer is yeah. And then Jesus says, if you've done that, then you're guilty. You missed the intent of the law. Then you're guilty of the same as the murderer. And then Jesus takes all the rest of the six. The next one is, um, thou shalt not commit adultery. Many of us would say, hey, I'm good on that one. Well, Jesus says, if you, and he's speaking to us men, if you've ever looked at a woman with lustful intent, whew, then you're guilty of adultery. And that's why we say that Adam is our perp- our, a perfect representative for us, is he not? Because like Adam, we all are lawbreakers, are we not? I mean, you understand this, right? Like that's, that's the... That's, that's kind of the undercurrent of the gospel. What's needed in this is a new representative. And that's why Jesus is standing on trial here is because Jesus is our new, for those of us who are saved, Jesus is our new representative. And the question is, is who better represents you? Many times, like I said, people wanna go, hold on a minute. I wanna be repre- like, don't let Adam represent me. I mean, we understand that, right? Those of us, every, every, like, especially in the summer, in the winter, every couple of years, we get to watch the Olympics take place. Like, how many of you enjoy the Olympics? And what happens in the Olympics is you've got all of these super athletic, super honed, super disciplined athletes, and they're representing us, are they not? And you and I, we sit back, you know, they travel to other countries to, to, in order to compete in sporting events. And you and I, we sit back in our, in our lazy boy recliners, right? Kick back with eating popcorn, peanuts, sipping some sort of beverage, right? And what do we do when we see them come out, waving the flag because they're representing us? We go, go get them boys, right? And we got to ask the question, like, do they properly represent us? Well, yeah, they do because they're waving the flag, but do they really represent you and I? And they don't represent you and I. Like we could hand pick a few of you jokers out and send you out and we would represent Americans better than most of the super athletic, super honed folks that are representing us. The same thing is true as we look at Adam and we think about Adam, and we look at Christ and we think about Christ. We need to ask who better represents us. And the truth is, is, It's Adam who better represents us. He's a better representative. And what that calls for then is a new representative. That's what Jesus is doing. Jesus is the perfect law keeper. Jesus is a new representative who is unlike us. He is from a new kingdom, the kingdom of God, not the kingdom of man. And Jesus stands in, and that's what Paul's saying in Romans 5, Jesus stands in as our new representative but here as the court conve- convenes jesus will be innocent yet he will be declared guilty jesus is sinless and yet he will bear the punishment for sin jesus is perfect yet he satisfies the father's demand for holiness jesus is righteous yet he is condemned And what occurs here by faith for those of us who trust in Jesus is what Martin Luther called the great exchange. It's where Adam, our first representative, he brought sin, condemnation, and death that has spread to all of us. But Jesus, he has brought justification and righteousness and life. And this is the very crux of the gospel that even though we're in narrative form, I want us to understand as we begin to work in the, what's happening on the, theologically, if you will, with the, the, even the trials and the death of Jesus and the resurrection, that what we even find here is the very crux of the gospel, that what we need to understand is we have to understand all of the courtroom and legal language that's scattered throughout the New Testament, the technical theological term that's describing this transaction that's taking place here, it's the, is the, is the term of imputation. That Adam's one sin is imputed. That means it's accounted, it's credited, it's reckoned to all that he represents, which is all of humanity. As a result of this transaction, all who are in Adam enter into the state of condemnation. That is to say that they are liable to divine justice for the one sin of Adam that has been imputed to them but then they also show that Adam is the right representative by continuing to sin themselves. But then on the other hand, you have Christ, Jesus Christ and his righteousness. And for anyone who believes, Christ becomes our new representative and Christ's righteousness is imputed to us. He, Christ's righteousness is imputed to all that he represents. And as a result of this transaction, all who are in Christ are justified. God counts them righteous. That means morally pure, morally perfect, perfectly obedient, not for anything that we have done or are doing or even ever will do, but God justifies sinners on the basis of the perfect obedience and full satisfaction of Christ, which God imputes to them, which they receive through faith alone. The very crux, the very foundation of your right standing with God is Jesus's right standing with God, not yours. And what that means for us, church, is when we get it right or whether we get it wrong, Christ still, it's still Christ's righteousness that he's received. When you stay awake during the sermon or you fall asleep during the sermon, it's still Christ's righteousness that he looks at. Whenever you read your Bible super diligently and pray, as we know that we all ought, or whether your Bible's got dust this thick on it, you haven't opened it up in weeks. It's still Christ's righteousness that he looks at. That's the good news. When you get it and when you don't get it, for those of us who are in Christ, it's Christ's righteousness that he looks at. Now, listen, like people say that and they go, well, what a minute, wait, wait a minute. Does that just free us to live however we want to live? And the answer is that, yeah, it does free us to live however you want to live. Because the people that rightly understand that, that it's all by Christ and for Christ, guess how we want to live for Christ's glory alone. That's how we want to live. Because this great exchange has taken place. In fact, you know what follows Romans chapter five? Romans chapter six. That's pretty good there. You are are with it. And that's what in Romans chapter six, after Romans five, where Paul talks about this new representative whose his righteousness is now accredited, counted, imputed to you. They say, hold on a minute. Then doesn't that just free you to live however you wanna live? Then won't you say that where, then where, uh, where sin abounds, grace all the more abounds. And wouldn't you just keep sinning and sinning and sinning so you could receive more and more grace? Like, Paul, you can't say that. You can't tell people that. And then Paul says, hold on a minute, hold on a minute. No, wait, wait, wait. Also in that that we've been united to Christ, we've been united to his righteousness, we've also been united into a death like his and so that we might be resurrected into a life like his. There's been a spiritual transformation that has taken place by our faith that we placed in Christ that has transformed us, where we no longer want to live for ourselves, but we now want to live for the glory of Christ. What does it mean to be a Christian? Well, it's those of us who have laid a hold of Christ by faith and laid a hold of his precious gift, of his sacrifice that he's laid down. And once you understand that, once you lay a hold of that, it forever changes you and transforms you from the inside out. See, the part that the Jews were missing was the inside part. They got the outside part. We saw that in the text. Hey, Pilate, we can't even go into your home because we don't want to defile ourselves. The problem they were missing is inwardly is the problem they're already defiled, but Jesus in his great grace, when he imputes perfect righteousness to us, he gives us his spirit and his spirit cleanses us from the inside out and it changes us. And how does it change us? Well, it doesn't just change us to be legalistic law pickers but it changes us so that we want to worship Jesus. We sing it in the song, um, How Marvelous. We sing, and all of um, and all of this is, uh, he took my sins and my sorrows and he made them his very own. He bore the burden to Calvary and he suffered and he died alone. And then what follows that? How marvelous, how wonderful is this love that Jesus has done for us, is our savior, that when you understand what Christ has stepped in and taken our place, it changes us and it changes uh, it makes us worship him, makes us want to sing to him and want to live for him and want to love him. So the first sin is as a transgression and Jesus is standing in into a, into a civil sphere, into a civil courtroom where judges are looking at him. Governmental officials are judging his life but, and, and at the end of it, he'll be declared not guilty because he's sinless. But you and I are the guilty ones. But second way we can look at sin is sin as, the Bible talks about sin as defilement. So again, if you're taking notes, the first one was sin as transgression against the laws of God, but sin is also defilement against the holiness of God. That because Adam and Eve transgressed, sin entered into mankind, not just exteriorly, not just on the exterior, but on the inward part, it has corrupted us morally. It's what the reformers called total depravity. This didn't mean that we're as evil as we possibly can be, but what it means is we're corrupt through and through. All of our being has been corrupted by sin. Our mind, our will, our emotions, all of it has been corrupted by sin. The picture the Bible gives of this defilement, that's the word that is used, we've been defiled by sin. The picture is the picture of sickness. It's a picture of leprosy. Leprosy is a real disease, but the Bible uses it as an image and as a picture of what sin does to us on the inside. Everything that a leper touched became unclean. A leper was cast out. A leper, as he walked the streets, would have to yell, unclean, unclean, unclean. And that is what sin has done to us. It has made us unclean. It means most of what we touch, we find a way to wreck it by our sin. And the need is for a cleansing and for a healing. And in the Old Testament, a sacrificial system, it pointed to this truth. The sacrificial system that it included ritualistic cleansing, now baptism is almost a shadow or it pointing to baptism. The pinnacle of the sacrificial system was a blood sacrifice. It was the slaughtering of a sacrifice, generally a lamb, an innocent lamb without spot or blemish, would be offered up. And the way that it would be offered up for the sins of the people, for the defilement of the people, the way that it would be offered up, it is, as Pastor Brian said last week, it would be tied up and then it would be presented to the high priest. And that's what we had in last week's text. Jesus being bound around his wrist, maybe even his feet, and being delivered over to Annas and Caiaphas, the high priest, so that he may be slaughtered. It's even fitting within the gospel of John. Do you remember the first thing in John chapter one? Gosh, how long ago was that? Two years ago when we, two and a half almost years ago, when we started into the gospel of John. John begins with a what's called a prologue, but right after that, it picks up in the narrative. And the first time we hear of Jesus in the narrative, it is words spoken about Jesus from the mouth of John the Baptist. John the Baptist is baptizing in uh River Jordan, and he looks up and sees Jesus coming. And what does John say? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And now we fast forward to the 18th chapter of the book of John, and we see the Lamb of God being bound up and being delivered to the high priest in order to be slaughtered for the sins of his people. That's what's happening here. The punishment for sin is death, that by faith. When we trust in Christ as our Savior, He becomes our sacrificial Lamb. That what the high priest would do as a sacrifice would be offered is the high priest would take the 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 Lamb and before um, slitting his throat, the priest would first he would they would lay their hands on the head of the Lamb. This is um, the biblical principle of transference. That as the high priest laid his hands upon the head of the Lamb, he was symbolically transferring transferring the sins of the family that had given that lamb. He's symbolically transferring that to the lamb and then the lamb would be slaughtered. And in the same way you and I, by our faith in Christ, we are transferring our sins to the lamb of God on the cross as he is being slaughtered. Jesus is our sacrificial lamb who stands in our place. In fact, we see this in the Old Testament time and time again. It's such a beautiful picture as we prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper. We can even remind you of, maybe uh, maybe some of you read it, maybe some of you haven't, but in Exodus, the 24th chapter. Um, the, in Exodus, the 20th chapter, the Israelites, they've been, re- in, in the beginning, they've been received out of Egypt. They're crossing over. They're heading to the To the promised land. On the way to the promised land, they stop by Mount Sinai, where Moses goes up on the mountain to meet with God, and God gives Moses the law. Moses comes down off of the mountain and he gives the people the law, the law of the covenant. So it's a new covenant God is making with his people, it's a covenant of works. Our covenant isn't a covenant of works. Ours is a covenant of grace. Theirs was a covenant of works. And so what Moses does is Moses, this is now I'm in Exodus 24. Moses reads to the people, the law of God. And at the end of that, he asks them, do you promise to keep this covenant? And the people say, yes, we will keep this covenant. And Moses hears that. Now here's the problem. They're a bunch of liars. That's the problem. They're a bunch of sinners and they're unable to keep the covenant. In fact, just a few chapters from now, just a few, maybe days or weeks from that, these same Israelites that said, yes, we'll keep the covenant. Moses goes up on the mountain. He'll come back down and guess what they've made? A golden calf, an idol that they're worshiping now. This is Yahweh that delivered us. It's this calf and we're worshiping him. And Moses loses his mind as, you know, any pastor would, right? If I come in here and you are bowing down to Buddha, you better believe it. The elders will lose our minds. Moses loses his mind, goes ballistic and all that. But In that ceremony in Exodus 24, after he reads the covenant to the people and asks the people, will you do this? They say, yes, Moses has sacrifices made to God. In this picture, in this time it was oxen. He had a bunch of oxen made up. And then what Moses does is Moses takes the blood of the oxen and Moses takes that blood and he throws it. That's what the Bible says. He throws that blood at the altar first. And then he throws that blood on the people. And what's happening there, it's a foreshadowing of Jesus. It's a foreshadowing of us in this church. It's a foreshadowing even of this Lord's Supper. That here in just a second, you all, we together, as we're biblically commanded to do, we're going to examine ourselves. We're going to think about our lives. We're going to look at our lives. We're going to judge our lives. We're going to think about God's law, God's commanded as it's contained in Scripture. We're gonna, we're gonna think about what God has commanded of us to do, how we are to live as his people. And we're gonna think about the incongruencies of our lives. Nobody thinks about these things and thinks, man, I've got it made. There's nothing I need to tighten up. There's nothing else I need to do. There's no sin that I need to confess. I mean, if, if you do, raise your hand and we'll, we'll have a little one-on-one meeting. And I, believe me, give me about five minutes with you and we'll find something, right? Right? But we examine our lives and we think about our lives just as the children of Israel. Lord, we want we want to keep your law, but we don't because we're sinners and we're broken. We've been defiled by sin. And then what we will do after we think and, and, and examine our lives and confess sin before Jesus, then what we will do is we will come here and we're gonna take little shot glasses, right? No, little plastic glasses. We shouldn't say that. We're taking little plastic glasses filled with juice, that represents Jesus' blood. The same blood that covers us, that makes up the gap between our inability to keep God's law and God's great grace that he's given to us. And that's what we do here. That's what Jesus has done, is Jesus has stand, stood in our place. He's bore the punishment, the condemnation that you and I Deserve. And we, by faith, we lay a hold of that. And we lay a hold of Jesus' great sacrifice that he's given. Now, what that means for us, a couple things, is one of us, for for the unbelievers in the room. Oh, let's first, let's talk to the believers. For those of you that are believers, that believe in Jesus, that are genuinely and truly, you are Christians. Think about this great gift that Jesus has given. Think about your life. Think about what Jesus has done for you. Think about that. It's the time of Passover. That's not an accident that this is happening. It's the time of Passover because Jesus is the perfect Passover lamb. Jesus's blood applied to our hearts and to our lives means that God's wrath, God's judgment passes over us. It landed on Jesus and it now passes over to us because we are united to him. The next morning after the Passover, guess what the Jews did? They packed their stuff and they got out of Egypt. That's what they did. They got up and they left the slavery of Egypt and they followed God toward the promised land. And the picture of that for us is once we are saved, for those of us who are believers, we leave Egypt, we leave behind the slavery of sin, we leave behind the worldliness and we leave behind our sin and we leave behind our pride and we leave behind all those things and we follow after Jesus. So as you examine yourself, what you're examining is how well and how hard and how diligent and how faithfully am I following after Jesus? That's what we're examining. We're thinking of those things. And then lastly, for the unbelievers in the room, we've looked at... um, Six trials of Jesus very quickly, but we've looked at six trials of Jesus. And there's one final trial that is being had right now as we speak. And the seventh trial is the trial that's going on in your heart where you preside as judge. The Jews were looking at Jesus, is he the son of God? The Romans look at Jesus, is he the king of the Jews? And you in your own heart, you're judging the same thing. Is Jesus who he said he was? Is he the son of God? Is he the sacrificial lamb? Is he the king of, it, of, of the kingdom of God, but the, kingdom of, the king of it all? Is he Lord and Savior? Is he Lord and Savior of your life? That is the judgment that is taking place right now in your heart. And in your heart, you're either receiving him or you're rejecting him. You're either receiving him as, yes, that Jesus, you are who you said you are. And I believe in that. I believe in that personally. I believe in that personally for all of my sins that I've committed. I believe in that, that you would cover me, that you would make me righteous. I receive you as as Lord and a savior. I'm gonna follow after you. I'm gonna serve you. I wanna worship you with my life, not with just singing songs in a church service, but with my life. Or you say, no, he's not. He's something else, just a man, a lunatic, just a historical figure, just a figment of our imagination. You're saying something else. There's a judgment taking place in unbelievers' hearts right now. Believers, we're worshiping him as Lord. And unbelievers, I pray that the Spirit would have work. In fact, let's do that now. Father in heaven, you have sent your Spirit that does a greater work than than preachers can do. He does a greater work than anyone can do, that he knows the intention of the heart and he has been given great power to resurrect the dead. Jesus, I pray for folks in the room who are undergoing that judgment right now as they decide who you are, as they decide who you are for themselves. That no one will leave this place, having not made some sort of decision, either you are who you said you claim to be as we believe you to be, or you're something else. And my prayer is that you, by by your strong power, that if there are unbelievers in this room, that you would enable them, give them life and call them to yourself. that we know that we have an adversary who clouds the minds of unbelievers, who veils the gospel so that they may not hear. And we look to you, Jesus, with infinite power. Would you unveil what is veiled? Would you make clear what is clouded? And maybe folks in this room, maybe the the only thing they may know today is that I believe in you, Jesus, and I want to be saved. I'm sorry for the sins that I've committed against you and I want to be saved. That's all I knew. And I met you, Jesus, who was able to save to the uttermost. And I pray that they would find that same Savior. And Lord, for the rest of us in this room, as we think about our lives, as we examine our lives, Lord, may your spirit be with us. And as we think about you, Jesus, our great representative who stood in our place, who's freed us from the condemnation that our sins should bring and the condemnation that Adam has brought, may we properly worship you in this time. May we eat this bread and drink this cup with deep gratitude gratitude and deep worship in our hearts. In your name we pray, amen.